Radio Free Mormon, how are you? I can barely hear you over the applause, Mr. Rio. I'm is great, though. How are you doing? I am so good. Life is good. I probably do for a little shave, but uh, 5 o'clock shadows got me today. But um, super excited. Any thoughts from you before we start the show? I want to uh, try to explain maybe kind of a precursor to what it is that we're doing tonight. But before that, I wanted to give you a chance to make any announcements about things you're working on or things that are on your mind. Well, just working hard to do my weekly podcast that I've committed myself to. First off, Brush Up Your Shakespeare. We've got three episodes up and running over at the Brush Up Your Shakespeare webpage under Mormon Discussions Podcast, Inc., i.e. this umbrella, and also uh, Mormon Sunday School, which I'm working hard on, because that's a weekly, too. I've got to keep up with the Come Follow Me manual. In fact, I have to keep up with it so well that I'm a week in advance of it. Yes. And folks, there is a YouTube channel for both of those. And in the long run, I think it's going to benefit RFM uh, if folks uh, watch the videos there and subscribe to both those channels there. If you're uh, if your priority, you know, if, if the way you're comfortable is to listen to podcast audio by, by audio, by all means, they'll be available to you. Uh, but your I think your best bet to help us out and to help RFM specifically is to subscribe at the YouTube channels and uh, to listen to his videos there. And I think it's always better to watch RFM rather than just to listen to him uh, as he puts things up on the screen and uh, makes often points much more clear with his graphics. So um, anything else? Well, thank you. Now, I know that you've been working hard on tonight's show. And I think that what you're dealing with, if you'll permit me, is this Mm -hmm. issue of we all know of a variety of instances where the church has changed its teachings over time. It says one thing uh, at one point, then it says another thing later on. Like it used to be said that you'll get your own planet when you're exalted. Now they're trying to say, no, you won't. That's not really true. Actually, they just say no. But that's a matter of teaching. We've seen a lot of those, and that has its own set of problems. What we're talking about tonight, I believe, is something that's more specific and a little bit more difficult for the church to get around. And that is when a specific teaching is contained in the scriptures. So if you've got a specific teaching that's called a certain label in the scriptures, like celestial marriage or a new and everlasting covenant of marriage, now, if that means one thing earlier on that it doesn't mean anymore, then what the church has to do is they either have to change the scriptures, which they're very reluctant to do. They're not going to go in and change the scriptures. What they're going to do is they're going to redefine the terms to mean something else. And I think that's what it is that you have for us tonight. Yeah, the the church would like everyone to believe that celestial marriage or the new or a new ever an everlasting covenant of marriage means just eternal marriage. You take your spouse, go to the temple, both of you kneel across altars, grab yourselves uh, in the patriarchal grip, look into the mirrors on the other side of each other into eternity. Let the guy say the magic words, and now you're sealed. And what we need to do, and what I tried to prepare tonight, is for us to go back to prior to 1890, because the moment the manifesto happens and Wilford Woodruff feels forced by the U.S. government to make a change, the church has little options left than to change the definition of these words, because otherwise they would be essentially an apostasy. They would be getting rid of something that was not allowed to be gotten rid of. And so tonight, as we go through the documents, 
my hope is that folks will sense how did the prophets, seers, and revelators prior to 1890, generation after generation, think about section 132, think about what kind of marriage was required to be exalted, to not only have the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, but to then be um, able to create worlds and create spirit children and populate worlds, because we also know that some folks will make the celestial kingdom, but will not have uh, eternal, um, what's the word they use? Um, having having post eternal posterity, having posterity continue forward, having uh, essentially uh, uh, spirit children. And so I want to sort of set this up because I want to agree on some level with the church and with the apologist, namely Fair Mormon. And I want to start with section 22 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I just want to note here, baptism is a new and everlasting covenant. Notice verse one at the end, a new and everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. Section 22 clearly talks about baptism. So we have to wrap our heads around the idea that there may be multiple new and everlasting covenants, and not all of them have to do with plural marriage. There may also be this idea, because we find it in the next section, that in section 66, blessed are you for receiving mine everlasting covenant, even the fullness of my gospel. So the term can also be used to signify just the gospel in general, all of the saving ordinances that require covenants to enter them, and that the collective group of those covenants that are part of the everlasting gospel could also be considered a, an everlasting covenant. But what happens is when we get to section 131 and Joseph Smith and the early church leaders are beginning to prepare the church for the unveiling of polygamy. And in section 131, I just want to note, it's the church that calls it celestial marriage. Notice in the heading there, celestial marriage is essential to exaltation. There's no doubt about this, by the way. Regardless of which side you fall on in interpreting what celestial marriage means, it is clear from the church's teachings that celestial marriage is essential to exaltation, and we, as those offering critical commentary, would agree that the church has themselves painted into that corner. Section 131 also mentions the new and everlasting covenant of marriage uh, in verse two. Verse four, he may enter into the other, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. One has to be um, in the covenant or be worthy of the covenant, would have lived it if they could have, the covenant of celestial marriage or the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And I'll give you a moment here, Arfim, if you want to speak about patriarchal matrimony, but as we go through these documents, the phrase we'll see the most often is celestial marriage. What we will see the least often is new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And the one we'll see sort of in the middle that people don't aren't even really familiar with, but it when you go into these old documents, you run into it quite often, is this term of patriarchal matrimony. Is there anything you want to say there, RFM, about that? Well, let me just go ahead and note that section 131 was uh, received or at least given in teachings by the prophet Joseph Smith in May of 1843, then written down, later canonized. But he talks about the celestial glory. There are three heavens or degrees. We all know about this. 
But and in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood. Now, that's interesting because what it's referring to is the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. It actually says that there in the bracketed part. And that bracketed part is part of the revelation. Correct, Bill? I actually don't know that if the church added it or if it was part of it. But either way, the prophet yeah, Joseph it's in, Smith. It's in, the, it's in the scriptures. I just looked it up. Okay, sweet. Yeah, it's there. And so all I'm saying is that the new and everlasting covenant of marriage is a special kind of marriage that must be entered into in order to obtain the highest, the fullness of glory in the celestial kingdom. And it is also referred to as entering into an order of the priesthood. There is an order of the priesthood that is associated with entering into this new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And that's all I have to say, really, about this particular passage. Yeah, and I think we'll revisit this maybe in a few weeks where we talk about the orders of the priesthood. Often we think of just Aaronic or Melchizedek, um, but there's more to it than that, and we'll get into that uh, maybe at a later yeah, time. Just to say really quickly, Joseph sure. Smith talked about there being three priesthoods, and there, the third one that he talked about, or a third one that he talked about, was the patriarchal priesthood. And he yes. talked about that, was it 1842 or so? Was that 43 as well? We're not going to get into this tonight, maybe another time. We're going to stick yeah. with the celestial and the new and the everlasting covenant because this opens another can of worms and it gets um, increasingly more complex. Yeah. But this patriarchal priesthood appears to have a great deal of association with plural marriage and that yeah. that is what the parties are entering into and perhaps both the men as well as the women are entering into this patriarchal order of the priesthood and it probably should not be envisioned and i say probably should not be envisioned as joseph smith laying his hands on somebody and giving them the patriarchal priesthood it appears that this priesthood was received by going through the temple rite, and so the men and the women receive the priesthood even the endowment today reflects the fact that the men as well as the women are receiving both the ironic and melchizedek priesthoods and uh, those are symbolized by the, the robes that they receive, both the men and the women, and the changing of the garment from one shoulder to another, although I don't know that they do that anymore. And then interestingly, interestingly, the very most sacred token or sign uh, that is had in the temple, it would be the second token of the Melchizedek priesthood, or the second sign, has a certain name. It has two names, and the first one is called the patriarchal grip. Yeah. And that probably is named that for a specific reason. And the name of that sign is given, and I think everybody here uh, who has a good memory and been through the temple as many times as I have can probably quote it verbatim. We won't do that here. But there are a number of clauses in that name, and the last one has to do with posterity and asking blessings from God upon your posterity through all generations of time, throughout all eternity. All right? So there are definite associations with plural marriage there. Yeah. But that's all I'm going to say for now. So I just made a note, top right, uh, just a note that there are these three terms. They all seem to, as we go through the documents, I think we'll overwhelm people with agreement that these are synonymous with plural marriage. Remember, it's the church that now uses celestial marriage to mean something else, but they continue to agree that whatever it means, it's required for exaltation. And if they change the meaning, 
what does that say and what does that mean? And maybe when we get to the end, we can sort of talk about that for a moment. But underneath my writing in the top right-hand corner is this heading principle and then a little sentence underneath that. That is from off the church's website, principle. If we understand the value of the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, we will be able to date and court in ways that keep us worthy of its sacred promises. They continue to use this terminology so they're agreeing to how important this word is. Now, the, the, the disagreement is what the word means. And then Fair Mormon at the very bottom there, they say, thus the everlasting covenant or new and everlasting covenant may refer to the gospel message and its restoration, which we agree. The phrase is also used, however, in the revelation on plural marriage. We will label this the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Compare D&C section 131. All right. Now, we're going to show a ton of documents. We're going to try to get through them as quick as possible. We don't need to take a long time on all of them. But I will and just so that note, everybody understands, I think they do by now, what, what you're going to do with your research that you've done, which is phenomenal on this case, is to track the, the uh, original meaning ascribed to these phrases by church leaders and then how those changed over time, how originally it was equivalent, these expressions to plural marriage and plural marriage only. And then after plural marriage was done away with, they changed the definition to make it just monogamy, but married in the temple. Yeah. And I think when you believe in the church and you believe in prophets, seers, and revelators, then their word has to mean something, especially when they are unified and they are teaching the same thing over a span of what? 150 years. No, sorry, 50 years, my bad, 50 years. So let's, with that, let's move through these. All right, so first off, DNC 132, it seems so clear until you are told you have to define this a different way, to interpret it a different way. It seems so clear here that God is speaking through uh, Joseph Smith, the prophet, about polygamy. He starts off the conversation saying, hey, we're gonna talk about Moses, David, Solomon, my servants who had many wives and concubines. He goes, I am the Lord, and I will answer thee as touching this matter, this matter of polygamy. Prepare thy heart to receive and obey the instructions which I'm about to give. By the way, nobody has to be prepared to receive and obey eternal marriage. We all want to be married to the person we love forever. If you have to convince somebody to accept something, it means it's difficult to accept. The only thing that makes sense in verse uh, three is that again, he's talking about polygamy. Verse four, for behold, I reveal unto you a new and everlasting covenant. And, ye, and if ye abide not that covenant, then ye are damned for no one can reject this covenant and be permitted into my glory. And then as you pointed out before we started the show, verse five on through essentially the rest of the revelation is Joseph Smith being told, what are the rules of polygamy? What does he need to know about polygamy? What is the first wife's responsibility with polygamy? What happens if the first wife de declines? What happens to others if they don't want to participate? Uh, anything else you'd want to say about that? Um, I know you have a lot to go over, but yeah, I'll just synopsize it by saying, if you go through the section 132 and you get down to verse 34, and it just starts talking about how God commanded Abraham and Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife. It's not talking about eternal marriage. 
Okay, it's talking about plural marriage. Now, it's supposed to last forever, but it's talking about plural marriage forever. So that's given as the example. Was Abraham therefore under condemnation? Verily I say unto you, nay, for I the Lord commanded it. That's verse 35. It goes on. Abraham received concubines, verse 37, and they bore him children. It was accounted unto him for righteousness. Verse 38, David also received many wives and concubines. Verse 39, David's wives and concubines were given unto him of me by the hand of Nathan, my servant. And so he was also justified, he, David, in taking plural wives. Okay. Then in verse 40, it says, I am the Lord thy God, and I gave unto thee my servant Joseph an appointment and restore all things. What things? The things he's just been talking about, the plurality of wives, the plural marriage. And then it goes on with other details about it. But uh, that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. So now I tried to put these as much in chronological order as I could. There's a few instances where I didn't have a specific date for when something was entered. Um, So for instance, here, Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses. uh, This is uh, volume 11, page 269. I've got it right here. And I'll just, I'll just read this quote that if so, um, again, first of all, you talk about polygamy says right in the beginning, we wish to obtain all that Father Abraham had attained, I wish here to say that the elders of Israel and to all the members of the church and the kingdom that is in the hearts of many to them to wish that the doctrine of polygamy was not taught and practiced by us. And then further down, again, he's talking about polygamy. He says, it is the word of the Lord, and I wish to say to you and all the world that if you desire with all your hearts to obtain the blessings which Abraham obtained, you will be polygamist at least in your faith, or you will come short of enjoying the salvation and glory which Abraham has obtained. Again, further down, the only men who become gods, even the sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. Um, this quote is often used by the critics, and it's one of the quotes that Fair Mormon and other apologists like to utilize. Again, they're not going to show you the full scope of what we are going to show you tonight. It would, it would be damning to them. So they will pick and choose, and they pick this one because then there's this earlier part of the quote that says that not everybody who lives polygamy will not be exalted. But it's very clear what it is teaching, and they don't really go to this step. But it is that maybe you won't get the chance to practice polygamy because if we're going to do polygamy, there's going to be a very there's going to be not enough women to go around. Again, even if the women are 60% to men being 40% in Utah or in Nauvoo for that matter. If the men keep taking two, three, four, five, six wives, and only it only takes a small number of men to do that, there will not be enough women to marry the other men in the community. So there will be single men. What Brigham Young is teaching is that those men who don't have polygamy available to them they need to at least be converted to it in their heart that if there was an opportunity to live polygamy and they did because they 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 have that sort of belief then they would still be saved all right celestial marriage by the way I will notice, ask that bill please bill that all he's doing is teaching section 132 and he's throwing in a dollop of king benjamin's sermon where he admonishes the people to not let the beggar put up their petition in vain And he says, if you don't have the money to give to the beggar, I would that you would say in your heart, if you could give, I would give. And if that is the true intent of your heart and you're just too busted poor to give any money to a beggar, then 
that satisfied as well. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so the next one here, this is a discourse by Elder Orson Pratt delivered in Salt Lake City, August 29th, 1852. The title oh, by the here, way, from yes. Brigham Young, that was 1866. Okay, perfect. That was one of them I didn't have a date for. Um, notice Orson Pratt titles his discourse, Celestial Marriage. Here's the heading. It is quite unexpected. I'm sorry, not the heading, but the very first sentence in his talk. It is quite unexpected to me, brethren and sisters, to be called upon to address you this forenoon and still more so to address you upon the principle which has been named, namely a plurality of wives. It is rather new ground for me. That is, I have not been in the habit. He talks about how he hasn't been in the habit of speaking on this subject. In that talk, he says, now let us inquire what will become of those individuals who have this law taught unto them in plainness. If they reject it, a voice from the stand says, they will be damned. They'll be damned. Yep. I will tell you, they will be damned, saith the Lord Almighty, in the revelation he has given. Why? Because where much is given, much is required. Where there is great knowledge unfolded for the exaltation, glory, and happiness of the sons and daughters of God, if they close up their hearts, if they reject the testimony of his word, and if and will not give heed to the principles he has ordained for their good. They are worthy of damnation, and the Lord has said they shall be damned. This was the word of the Lord to his servant Joseph the prophet himself. With all the knowledge and light he had, he must comply with it. Or, says the Lord unto him, you shall be damned, and the same is true in regard to those who reject these things. Orson Can Pratt, I make an observation here please. for just a second, and I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But this does strike me as potentially important in another arena about whether Joseph Smith taught plural marriage. I know it seems to be an issue with some people nowadays as to whether he taught it. Orson Pratt had no compunction against going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Brigham Young publicly on doctrines that Brigham Young taught, such as the Adam-God theory. All right, Orson Pratt publicly opposed him in that and almost got thrown out of the Quorum of the Twelve and probably... Uh, that's why the uh, the system in the Quorum of the Twelve of seniority was changed so that he would never become the president of the church, which he otherwise would have. He lived long enough to be uh, president, except they changed it. Uh, yeah. Brigham Young changed it prior to his death, obviously. There were other things that he talked or about and disagreed about publicly with Brigham Young uh, regarding intelligence, regarding uh, whether God is all-knowing all sorts of things he disagreed with Brigham Young. This is one which is more controversial than any of those or all of them put together. And I'm going to suggest that the reason that Orson Pratt comes out as one of the strongest and most vocal advocates for polygamy is because he knew it didn't start with Brigham Young, but that it came directly from Joseph Smith. Good point. I think this quote is from the same talk. It's at least delivered on the same day. He says, but says the objector, we cannot see how this doctrine can be embraced as a matter of religion and faith. We can hardly conceive how it can be embraced only as a kind of domestic concern, something that pertains to domestic pleasures. In no way connected with religion. In reply, we will show you that it, it is incorporated as a part of our religion and necessary for our exaltation to the fullness of the Lord's glory in the internal world. 
Would you like to know the reasons? Before we get through, we will endeavor to tell you why we consider it an essential doctrine to glory and exaltation, to our fullness of happiness in the world to come. Again, the topic isn't eternal marriage. It's celestial marriage, but the entire talk is on plural marriage, the plurality of wives. Let me go back and to... And he says, first off, he says it's necessary. Plural marriage is necessary for exaltation. And in case anybody doesn't get it, he says it in different words later where he says, we consider it an essential doctrine to glory and exaltation. Yeah. This is the seer, and the front page of the seer is in the top left corner, and then there's really a briefly, red box. Really Please. briefly, the seer mm -hmm. is, <clears throat> excuse me, Orson Pratt was sent over to the East Coast, and he was in, in charge of producing a newspaper, which he did in order to promulgate the teachings of the, the LDS church, and that was called the seer. So he's in charge of it. He wrote most of the stuff for it. You see, here's the perspective prospectus there in the upper left-hand corner. Down there, you can see Orson Pratt. And then you have part of it in red, which is, I think, made bigger, maybe here. Yep. But that's what the seer is. Sweet. So the very front page of this edition of the seer is the small image in the top left corner. There is a red box around a section there, and that is enlarged right to the right of it. So the, it says, the doctrine of celestial marriage or marriages for all eternity as believe and practice by the saints in Utah territory will be clearly explained. The views of the saints in regard to the ancient patriarchal order of matrimony or plurality of wives as developed in the revelation given through Joseph Smith, the seer will be fully published. And then off to the right hand bottom corner is the section where they go into great detail about the thing he just talked about on the cover, which is the article on celestial marriage, a revelation on the patriarchal order of matrimony or plurality of wives. Now he's not giving you an option. It's not that he's talking about this or that, it's that he's telling you that both terms mean the same thing. They are synonymous with each other. That's that's the only way to really understand what's happening here. You couldn't, you would be stretching it to try to pick it apart and go, well, Orson doesn't know which one it is and he's giving you the option of which one to pick. That doesn't make any sense. Again, I the circled part on that is made bigger on the bottom left-hand side. Celestial marriage, a revelation on the patriarchal order of matrimony or plurality of wives given to Joseph Smith, the seer in Nauvoo, July 12, 1843. Orson is saying that this is section 132, that section 132 is the revelation on the plurality of wives. Um, so there's that. If you could go back for just a second, mm -hmm. I just want to underscore that what Orson Pratt writes in the prospectus, middle top, the doctrine of celestial marriage or marriage for all eternity. So it is marriage for all eternity, right? As believed and practiced by the saints in Utah territory will be clearly explained. The views of the saints in regard to the ancient patriarchal order of matrimony or plurality of wives as developed in a revelation given through Joseph Smith, the seer, will be fully published. And indeed, he publishes the entirety of what we have in section 132 today. But the patriarchal order of matrimony is the plurality of wives. Yes. 
Yep. And I just want to note, uh, this was republished again. I'm not sure if it was by the church specifically, but this is just a duplicate of it. I just want to show that this pamphlet or this talk uh, was perpetuated. It wasn't just a one and only overseas, but this talk came back over here and was republished again. Uh, Celestial marriage, again, it says the same exact thing. Uh, and you can tell from verse one there in that, that it is section 132 of the DNC. Then we get... Can I... Yes, Maven. Because mm-hmm. I, um, I don't know if you have this quote that also makes... And this is a Brigham Young one, and it's it's from 1866. I don't think you have this one in your slide from his talk um, uh, called The Beneficial Effects of Polygamy. Is it okay if I share this quote from it real quick? Okay. Um <clears throat> This is one that I did in earlier research, so that's why I happen to have it on hand. But this is, yeah, so the beneficial effects of polygamy, these are remarks by President Brigham Young, like I said, 1866. Um, The only men who become gods, even the sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. Others attain unto a glory and may even be permitted to come into the presence of the Father and the Son, but they cannot reign as kings in glory because they had blessings offered unto them and they refused to accept them. And actually just before that, there was, um, um, it's a longer paragraph, I won't read the whole thing, but it is on the screen if you want to pause it and read it. Um, The part that right before that was interesting to me is that it already seemed that there were members of the church who didn't want to practice polygamy. So this part of the quote says, basically that there are people who will, will say to themselves like in their hearts, we have lucrative offices offered to us and we will not therefore be polygamists lest we should fail in obtaining some earthly honor, character, office, etc. The man that has that in his heart and will continue to persist in pursuing that policy as in monogamy will come short of dwelling in the presence of the Father, the Son. So it, I just thought it was interesting that if the implication is a selfishness and worldly attainment, that's why someone would want to be monogamous. There couldn't be anything, you know, good in a, in a man's heart who does not want to practice this. It's all just selfishness and the and vanity and the praise of the world. So, yeah, and once again, underscoring the fact that he's saying you cannot rule and reign in the celestial kingdom. You cannot be king. Yep. You cannot have a fullness of glory unless you are a polygamist. Yep. So, so this debate was already still like happening with Brigham Young. He he very clearly spells it out right here. You are wrong he, if you think yeah, that. And Brigham dies, I think, in 1877. So he really is the guy in charge up until 13 years before the manifesto. Um, I think that's an important point to keep in mind, too. All of these documents that are prior to 1877 or earlier, Brigham Young is the president of the church. So here is the Latter-day Saints millennial star. Again, look at the very first word above, not not the red part, but way up above, polygamy. Saturday, March 12th, 1853. One certainly must be very ignorant of the sacred book to suppose for a moment that polygamy is not a scriptural doctrine and the fact that it has been directly sanctioned of God under both the gospel and mosaic dispensations proves that it is an eternal principle, an institution as perpetual as God, who has thus affixed his seal and sanction to it. Notice the underlined part. Whenever God forbids the practice of this institution among his people, which the LDS Church would say right now, it was because he was displeased with them for their abuse of it. 
he would be god would be saying brigham young and the church at this time is essentially saying if at some point the church doesn't practice polygamy it's because god is displeased with the church and their abuse of it um so there's that orson pratt the seer uh, i don't have a date for this one if none but gods will be permitted to multiply immortal children it follows that each god must have one or more wives again if you're going to be a god you have to be a polygamous um, although it does say one or more so perhaps in this instance you could separate it and say at least one then you have in 1869 you've got three discourses on the same day elder orson pratt president george a smith and elder george q cannon they title this they, the church again uh, has this pamphlet discourses on celestial marriage, celestial marriage, and then you have these three leaders in the church who give talks. And I thought these three. I thought by the way, we could have just spent tonight going through these three talks, and it would have been sufficient to make the point. Elder Orson Pratt, again, you can see right there in the first red mark, he's talking about celestial marriage. Let us inquire whether it is lawful and right, according to the constitution of our country, to examine and practice this Bible doctrine. Again, he mentions celestial marriage. They claim is strictly a Bible doctrine and part of the revealed religion of the Almighty. He mentions celestial marriage again. Celestial marriage again in the same breath as he's talking about a polygamic people. And then at the bottom, reestablishment of the Bible religion and the celestial or patriarchal order of marriage. The entire talk is on polygamy. There's not any part of this talk that separates itself and says we're only talking about eternal marriage here. The entire talk is about plural marriage, and it takes up about 10 pages. In uh, the source notes for this episode, as soon as it finishes, I will put all of the sources that I used for the documentation into the YouTube uh, description of the episode, the synopsis and you'll have access to go through all of these. Uh, the next one, George Albert Smith, I think it's Albert, I know that's the later leader who becomes the president of the church, who I think that is. Um, they said the doctrine of plural marriage, plurality of wives. Again, the opposers of celestial marriage, nobody's opposed to eternal marriage. Nobody's going after the church saying, no, damn you, you can't take two people into the temple and seal each other for time and all eternity. Nobody has a problem with that. Nobody cares. What everybody is up in arms about is plural marriage. And so the opposers of celestial marriage sometimes quote the passage, seventh chapter of Romans, second and third verses, to show that a plurality of wives is wrong. That is crystal clear that Boom, celestial yeah. marriage is speaking of plurality of wives. Um, talks about a plurality of husbands is wrong. Uh, then up in the right-hand side, polygamous, plural marriage, patriarchal marriage, again, patriarchal marriage again, patriarchal marriage again, in the same breath as plurality of wives. Last paragraph is celestial marriage. Folks, anybody who has any questions that I'm picking, I'm selectively picking paragraphs to make a point, but I'm being deceptive, please go back to the original documentation. Uh, each one of these talks goes about 10 pages in I think a 28 page uh, uh, pamphlet. And there is no doubt that every single talk is definitively focused on plural marriage. The last I one wonder, is elder, please. I'll just throw in that George A. Smith, uh, I may have misunderstood you. Uh, he's not George Albert Smith. Okay. He's probably the father. 
of George Albert Smith. And George A. Smith may be to George Albert Smith as Joseph F. Smith is to Joseph Fielding Smith. There's a couplet. Okay, thank you. And uh, so there, there's that. And then the third one in this is Elder George Q. Cannon. Again, patriarchal or celestial marriage, patriarchal marriage, patriarchal marriage. Again, if you go back and read the, the talk, it is entirely focused on plurality of wives. Um, I think that we've established that patriarchal marriage is synonymous with plural marriage. Yes. And celestial marriage being equated with patriarchal, they're just different terms for the same thing, at least before 1890. Yeah. Wilford Woodruff, in his journal, dated 12th of February, 1870. Uh, RFM, do you want to read this one? I attended the School of the Prophets. Brother John Holman made a long speech upon the subject of polygamy. He contended that no person could have a celestial glory unless he had a plurality of wives. Speeches were made by L.E. Harrington, O. Pratt, Erastus Snow, D. Evans, J.F. Smith, Lorenzo Snow, no, Lorenzo Young. President Young said, there would be men saved in the celestial kingdom of God with one wife, with many wives, and with no wife at all. Yeah, this is another... There, they just won't be able to be kings. They won't have the fullness Cor of the exaltation. At least the Brigham Young's being consistent. Correct. This is another quote that the apologists bring up because they go, well, clearly President Young didn't think everybody had to be a polygamist. But we already have the church on record saying that people can make the celestial kingdom without polygamy. As you point out, they can't be kings. It also, again, leaves room for the lost boys of early Mormonism who couldn't find a wife because the other men had already taken all of the women. And hence you needed to have some room in your theology for the men who were gonna be left with no one to marry to make room that if they still believed in their heart that they would do it if given the chance, that they could be saved in the celestial kingdom. These quotes isolated on their own don't do what the apologists use them. You know, that's what they do. They isolate them and say, hey, here's this quote. Here's what it means. I'm asking that folks take it in light of all the other things that are being consistently said prior to 1890. And I think it's important in understanding Brigham Young to recognize that he's responding directly to the blanket statement by this brother, John Holman, who says, only people who are practicing polygamy can have celestial glory. Nobody else. And Brigham Young is responding to that by saying, no, that's not true, because there will be people in the celestial kingdom, right, who have many wives, one wife, or no wife at all. So he's responding to that blanket statement, which he's saying is an error. And so it's quite consistent with what Brigham Young said before, including the fact that only those who enter into polygamy and have plural wives will be able to rule and reign in the celestial kingdom. Maven. I also wanted to, yeah, I wanted to just point out that um, while there is a, a, a number issue with the, just inside of Utah, where typically men and women are born at the same rates, but the church is aware, I mean, there's the outside, they were still like from the UK, especially, but also from other countries, importing a lot of women in. So it's it wasn't so much a problem I think for Mormon men, while yes, some would, it's it's not quite the same, I think, as today that uh, the more insular and a lot more closed communities like the FLDS have a problem with the lost boys and whatnot, because I, I think that at this time, 
in the state's history, it wasn't nearly as closed off. There were people still coming in and they had zero respect for a regular marriage uh, performed, you know, for non-Mormons. And so, I mean, as we see, I think, isn't that the, was the undoing of, um, of uh, Parley P. Pratt, I think, was uh, helping himself to uh, a married woman. And uh, I, I think it was Parley P. Pratt whose husband, or, you know, the, the woman he helped himself to, her husband uh, was quite upset with him over it and, and had his revenge. So anyway, that's, I just wanted to point that out. It wasn't quite as closed. There were a lot, sort of lost boys, yes, but they were importing a lot of women still at that time. Maven, you triggered a thought. Okay, because you talked about the regular marriages, the civil marriages, uh, the Latter-day Saints didn't care, they didn't ascribe a lot of weight to, right? Right. Is that, if that's correct, okay, and I'm assuming for purpose of this that it is, I think it is, is that not a direct parallel to calling baptism in that earlier revelation that Bill put up, a new and everlasting covenant? because that is the revelation that describes why it is that even though people have been baptized before, they still have to be baptized into the church. They have to be baptized again because the other baptisms aren't part of the new and everlasting covenant. You have to be right. baptized by the correct authority for it to take, for it to work, for it to wash away your sins. And that would seem to be a direct analog to the new and everlasting covenant of marriage that unless it's entered into by the proper priesthood authority, then it really doesn't count. And you're not really married at all any more than you're really baptized if you're baptized by a different church. Right. And there were some member, some presidents of the church that had themselves sealed posthumously to women who were married. Um, Martha Brotherton, we know, is one that uh, rejected Brigham Young. I do believe she married outside of the church, but posthumously he had her sealed to him. And uh, also Wilford Woodruff in his uh, birthday sealings uh, that ranged anywhere from uh, women who, or, you know, females who died from infancy <clears throat> later on. There were some of them that were also married women in this life. But, you know, if, if Wilford Woodruff or Brigham Young wants them after they're gone, uh, you know, assigned to them, they just did it. Bill Real speaking now about Wilfred Woodruff and Thank his you. journal entry dated February 12, 1870. If there was any question about what President Young meant that Wilfred Woodruff uh, wrote down in his journal, all we have to do is look at what Wilfred Woodruff wrote a year later that President Young said. Wilfred Woodruff journal entry dated 24th of September, 1871. Then President Young spoke 58 minutes. He said, a man may embrace the law of celestial marriage in his heart and not take the second wife and be justified before the Lord. So even modern Mormons, if you're going to believe that the early leaders of the church were indeed prophets, seers, and revelators, I know that there are a lot of modern Mormons, a lot of modern Latter-day Saints who believe in the church, but go, I won't have to live polygamy. I won't need to do that. Like that was something they had to do, but I won't need to. But that's not what these guys teach. This is an eternal, everlasting covenant that is required for exaltation. You have to, in your heart, even if you don't have the opportunity to do so, even in the modern moment, you have to be willing to do that if you were asked to do it. 
And I know that there are lots of men and women in the church who dismiss that, but that's what the early leaders have stated. And that does sound a little bit like the modern day corollary about women in the church not getting married, because the idea is that the man is the one who's in charge of pursuing and proposing, right? So a woman may not get that opportunity because she never gets proposed to. Well, that's not going to be counted against her because in the resurrection, she'll be given the opportunity then to enter into a marriage at all. So that's kind of the same vibe I'm getting from this is that if you don't take the second wife, but you believe in it in all your heart and you would have if you'd had the opportunity. Now, I'm adding words to this brief uh, notation by Wilfred Woodruff, then it will be accounted unto you for righteousness. I'm going to say that as a woman who was getting, you know, through the young single adult ward and, and then failed out of that and then was in the single adult ward and just, you know, aging through Mormonism, never married. I, it started to get to the point before my deconstruction where I started to think like if it doesn't happen for me in this life that I very well could be just I, I just was thinking I'll be a somebody's second or, you know, nth number wife in the afterlife, um, that that would be my reward for righteousness. If I couldn't nab a guy here and be his number one, um, that this is a this is literally something that I thought about and and genuinely, you know, thought could be a possibility as a believing woman in the church. That that as I'm getting older and I'm not getting married, uh, this is this is how I would get my uh, my celestial marriage uh, as an assignment in in the. Uh, in the afterlife, this was a real possibility, real potential for me. So I just wanted to point Maybe that the out. Nth wife. Yep. You found this one, RFM. Tell us. This is a. This is kind of a cool reference oh, yeah. to celestial marriage. I just considered this when you were talking about celestial marriage being synonymous in early church usage with plural marriage, and I thought about this strange verb that appears. This is the only place I know of, right? Where we're getting the account from William E. McClellan. Uh, regarding Joseph Smith and Fanny Alger in the barn, where it says, Emma went to the barn and saw him, i.e. Joseph, and Fanny in the barn together alone. She looked through a crack and saw the transaction. Two exclamation points. Emma discovered that Joseph had been celestializing with his maiden, Fanny. Okay, and it goes on. Why that verb? Why would Joseph be celestializing with Fanny? In the words of William E. McClellan, written in 1872, it's an important date to remember because this is 20 years after Brigham Young and Orson Pratt and everybody's gone public out in Utah territory about, um, you know, that we're actually doing this plural marriage stuff, celestializing. I think I'm going to suggest that he's using that verb because it's specifically meant in his mind at least that Joseph Smith is having relations with a second plural wife. Otherwise, yeah. why would it be called celestializing? Yeah. It seems as though William McClellan clearly understands what celestial marriage is, and he's not in the church. So he's going back to the early time of the church and his experience with when that all got unveiled. And he understands clearly that celestial marriage is plural marriage. I think so. I yeah. think it's I think it's a, an interpretation that has some merit. Yeah. 
Then you've got the discourse by Brigham Young delivered at the Bowery. And at this, uh, at, I think something earlier said the Bowery. So this might be the same talk. Um, this is 1873. It's not 1866. Okay. So 1873, where a man in this church says, I don't want but one wife. I will live my religion with one. He will perhaps be saved in the celestial kingdom. But when he gets there, he will not find himself in possession of any wife at all. By the way, I just want to note, the only way to keep Brigham Young consistent in what he's teaching is to interpret all of these statements the way we are presenting them, not the way Fair Mormon isolates one and tries to interpret it. Brigham Young is clearly, again, if, if he's being consistent, he's clearly teaching that people can get to the celestial kingdom but they will not be king's priest and have eternal posterity unless they participate in plural marriage. So he says, but when he gets there, he will not find himself in possession of any wife at all. He has had a talent that he has hit up. Of course, here's women as property, right? He will come forward and say, here is that which thou gavest me. I have not wasted it. And here is the one talent and he will not enjoy it, but it will be taken and given to those who have improved the talents they received, and he will find himself without any wife. So turning one wife into five wives is taking one talent and, and making it better. And he will find himself without any wife, and he will remain single forever and ever. But if the woman is determined not to enter into plural marriage, that woman, when she comes forth, will have the privilege of living in single blessedness through all eternity. And then he goes on. But again, Brigham is pretty clear here uh, about this doctrine being necessary. Wait, what? Did I understand that right? So if, if a man was not worthy in his heart, but his wife was, she could live and like blessed singlehood? I did not know about this loophole is what I'm saying. Am I understanding that right? Well, it's if a woman is determined not to enter into plural marriage. Oh, okay. So and it's not the man, will... it's the woman. She can supposedly be single. Yeah, I No, I thought, because it... it was saying that the man, it, it, the, the whole talent thing, he will lose and he will not have a wife. But the wife that he had, she's the one that's going to be single. Is, isn't that what it's saying? It, help help me out, Bill. Them. Yeah, so both it, of them. He's the, applying the man... it both ways. Yeah, the man will be without a wife and the woman will be in single blessedness through all eternity. If if both the man and the woman don't want to live polygamy, their eternal progress is halted. They can make it to the celestial okay. kingdom, but the woman will be in single blessedness. They don't get the to be married no anymore. Wife. Yeah, okay, okay. Neither one. Got it. Thanks yep. for clearing, clearing that up. Then we've got a discourse by Elder Joseph F. Smith. July 7th, 1878. RFM, this is one I think I do want to read all of. Do you want to read these? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, some people have supposed that the doctrine of plural marriage was a sort of superfluity or non-essential to the salvation or exaltation of mankind. In other words, some of the saints have said and believe that a man with one wife sealed to him by the authority of the priesthood for time and eternity will receive an exaltation as great and glorious if he is faithful as he possibly could with more than one. By the way, I just want to stop. Way where we are yes. today. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, I is that the point you yes. wanted to make? Totally. Go ahead. Okay. And so basically, Joseph F. Smith is sort of 
prophesying the position of the church today. And this is in 1878, all right? Because that's what we're told, is that if we have one wife for men and one husband for women, if you are in a monogamous relationship sealed by the authority of the priesthood in the temple and you're faithful, then your glory will be just as great as if you had uh, been a polygamist. Right? Right. Okay. So uh, I want here to enter my solemn protest against this idea. Talk about dueling prophets. For I know it is false. There is no blessing promised except upon conditions, and no blessing can be obtained by mankind except by faithful compliance with the conditions or law upon which the same is promised. The marriage of one woman to a man for time and eternity by the sealing power according to the law of God is a fulfillment of the celestial law of marriage in part and is good so far as it goes. And so far as a man abides these conditions of the law, he will receive his reward therefore, and this reward or blessing he could not obtain on any other grounds or conditions. But, I knew there was a but coming, but this is only the beginning of the law, not the whole of it. Therefore, whoever has imagined, President Oaks, President Nelson, therefore, whoever has imagined that he could obtain the fullness of the blessings pertaining to this celestial law by complying with only a portion of its conditions has deceived himself. He cannot do it. Yeah, and then it ends there. So... He seems to be clearly saying that the modern church is wrong about what it frames as celestial marriage, that you can be exalted by going to the temple, getting your endowment, and eventually being sealed to one person for all time and eternity. That's not going to cut it, according to prophet, seer, and revelator Joseph F. Smith. This is uh, Revelation of June 25th and 26th, 1882. Uh, this has never been published, I believe, by the church. I think this is by John Taylor. This is not the 1886 Revelation. This is a different one entirely. I simply want to read sort of the beginning here. Revelation given through John Taylor to answer to a question on celestial marriage. This principle is not for the nations of the world, but only for the elect. Again, the elect, the, those who get exalted and become kings, priests, who have an eternal increase. Those who have this law revealed to them and don't obey it are damned. Any covenants or contracts not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise are of no force or efficacy after the resurrection. It is contrary to the Constitution to prohibit the living of celestial marriage in this country. And he goes on about celestial marriage, celestial marriage, celestial marriage, celestial marriage. And by the way, yeah. by the way, there was absolutely no constitutional issue that the church had with the federal government over monogamous marriages in the temple. All right. Celestial marriage here can only mean plural marriage the way that John Taylor is describing it in this revelation. Yeah. And the reason it's called celestial marriage, look over at number 18. This law is a celestial law and pertains to a celestial kingdom. It's called celestial marriage because it's the only form of marriage that gets you to the highest form of exaltation that you can attain. That's why it's called celestial marriage. Yeah. And as you point out, 
the government has zero problem with eternal ceilings. There's never been anything ever said by the U.S. government that they have a problem with you and your wife being sealed for time and all eternity. This is plural marriage. Yes. Then we get a discourse by Apostle George Tisdale, January 13th, 1884, where you have the eternity of marriage, you are bound to have plural marriage. You can't have one without the other, bound to, he says. And it is one of the marks of the Church of Jesus Christ in its sealing ordinances. In other words, the moment the Church claims to have one without the other, it has, by his standard, gone into apostasy. It has to have both. It's like a horse and carriage. Yeah, can't have one without the other. Love in marriage, (laughs) love in marriage. It's an institute you can't disparage. I watched a lot of Married with Children with Al Bundy. Yeah, I listened to a lot of Frank Sinatra. Okay, same same idea. (laughs) (laughs) This is um, the following extracts from it. So this is the Reed Smoot hearings. And these hearings are like 11 volumes. And they're thick. And they got tons of, of papers to them. But it is both... All the evidence that the that Reed Smoot and his lawyers presented, and then it's all the evidence that the United States government and their legal representation presented, and it's all accumulated in these books. And it so one like of the, a, it looks like this is from a first presidency statement, October 6, 1885, five years before the manifesto was issued. Correct. So this is a first presidency letter to the officers and members of the church dated October 6, 1885, correct? And this is this can be found in the volumes of the Reed Smoot uh, evidence. So it goes on there, starts off, but it says, we did not reveal celestial marriage. Again, the whole Reed Smoot crux, and it's not just, that's not the only thing they're going after with him, but one of the main cruxes that they're going after is that the church is still practicing polygamy secretly, and hence... Reed Smoot, who's not a polygamist, should not be allowed to take his seat as a representative for the country uh, as a politician who gets elected. And so I think he's a senator, is he not? I believe so. Yep. So it says, we did not reveal celestial marriage. We cannot withdraw or renounce it. God revealed it, and he has promised to maintain it and to bless those who obey it. Celestial marriage is plural marriage. We can't take it away, and God's already told us he's not going to either. Yeah, that's one of those many promises that God didn't quite get around to fulfilling. Yes. Yep. Because he didn't maintain it. Five years later, they're saying, okay, we give up. Yeah. There's this really cool moment. We've talked about this before on the show. There's the 1886 revelation by John Taylor, where this never makes its way into LDS canon, But when John Taylor dies, his son, John W. Taylor, finds it on his desk. You can go read the disciplinary court for John W. Taylor, who is brought before the leaders of the church and tried for apostasy, for continuing polygamy. John W. Taylor, John Taylor's son, pulls this out of his back pocket, lays it on the desk. Other members of the disciplinary court acknowledged that they already knew that this revelation existed. So it's not really disputed as being fraudulent. Fair Mormon on their website acknowledges that this almost certainly is authentic. 
Um, it's in the handwriting of John Taylor, president of the church. And uh, John Taylor here in this revelation claims that he is visited by Jesus Christ. Again, this is right in the midst of the U.S. government pressing hard against the church because of plural marriage. He's on the lamb. He's on He's the running from the federal it, officers because they're after him to arrest him and throw him in prison for yes. violating the law. Yes. And so are others, by the way, including George Q. Cannon, who were, who were reading several quotes from along the way, both behind us and in front of us in this episode. Yeah, he got um, caught. Yep. John Taylor in 1886 says, my son, this is the revelation he claims he received. This is the revelation that the Woolies use to try to justify uh, their continued polygamy. And it's what the FLDS and other polygamous sects of Mormonism that's what this is what they use this revelation and what the Woolies said happened that night that go hand in hand to justify their continued practice of the principle and not to accept the LDS's churches say so because John Taylor in 1886 says he's visited by Jesus Christ and Christ says my son John you have asked me concerning the new and everlasting covenant how far it is binding upon my people again eternal marriage is not it doesn't have anybody concerned. This is plural marriage. And Jesus Christ himself refers to plural marriage as the new and everlasting covenant. And, and then basically, if you read the rest of that, you can push pause on your screen and read it all. Jesus Christ tells John Taylor, sorry about your luck. I know the U.S. government is on your tail, but there's nothing I can do about it. This is an eternal covenant. It stays forever. Notice the very bottom. I have not revoked this law, nor will I, for it is everlasting. And those who will enter into my glory must obey the conditions thereof. Even so, amen. If the LDS church is right, and four years later, God goes ahead and tells Wilford Woodruff he can end polygamy, then that act made Jesus Christ himself a liar. Which is one of the reasons, I think, why Wilfred Woodruff was very careful to not say that God or Jesus had told him to end polygamy. Yeah. But they ended it anyway. Hey, can I bring up something else? It's, a, it's an interesting prophecy that uh, Brigham Young has in that same 1866 discourse about polygamy, which Please. ends up not being fulfilled. Once again, this is 1866. So this is 14 years, 24 years before 1890 right? But here's what he says. I heard the revelation. This is in the same talk. I heard the revelation on polygamy and I believed it with all my heart. And I know it is from God. I know that he revealed it from heaven. I know that it is true and understand the bearings of it and why it is. Do you think that we shall ever be admitted as a state into the union without denying the principle of polygamy? If we are not admitted until then, i.e. until we deny it, we shall never be admitted. Because we shall never deny it. Right. Yep. The LDS church has pulled the wool. If you're a believer in the church, the LDS church has pulled the wool over your eyes. They, they do not want to talk about any of these quotes. They certainly don't want to talk about them collectively because the church has done a 180 from what those prophets, seers, and revelators insisted this had to be interpreted as and insisted that it came from God. And now we're getting to the other part about the 180 where they change 
the definitions, right? Yep, we're getting close. Yay. Um, so this is the Reed Smoot hearing documentation church letter to the president of the United States. This is what the church wrote to the president of the United States at the time that the Reed Smoot hearing is, is about to take place. They say, we formally taught to our people that polygamy or celestial marriage as commanded by God through Joseph Smith was right. And it was a necessity to man's highest exaltation in the life to come. Um, and then it goes on there. I'm not sure I want to read all of these, but there is to oh, go ahead. Just to be clear, this is 1891. So it's a year after the um, manifesto has been announced by President Woodruff. And Woodruff is still the president at this time. Uh, the hearings for Reed Smoot. Yeah, this might be documentation that was included in the hearing, but this happened in 1891, whereas the Reed Smoot hearings themselves happened, I think, from 1904 to 1907. Yeah. The the piece just below that. So by the way, the the small, small print in the L shape on the bottom left-hand corner is all of this, but I just enlarged the parts that were important. Mm. Um underneath the very top one i put a link in if you're on the youtube chat i put a link to the documents for this oh, if you want to see it um, awesome the petition that, yeah. thank you yeah, yeah excellent excellent um below this i just want to note they're talking about the fact that it, in 18 it says here in september of 1890 the present head of the church wilford woodruff in anguish and prayer cried to god for help for his flock and received permission to advise the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that the law commanding polygamy was henceforth suspended. Now, suspended has uh, generally is understood a certain way, which means it's put off until some future time when we will be allowed to bring it back. So for those who say polygamy is done and never coming back, here's the church saying, no, 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 we don't want to talk about it really, but it's coming back. It's only been suspended. Yeah. Yeah, and it can also be used in other ways to try and make uh, uh, who is the guy who just bowed out of the the Republican um, primary last night? Is it Vivek? Is that the guy's name? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, when you drop out when you drop out of a, a race, you don't say I'm quitting. You say I'm suspending. Yeah, I'm suspending my 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 run for the presidency, and that's the exact words that he used, and that's what made me think of this. By the way, once again, this is 1891. This is from a petition by the church to the federal government to request amnesty for all the people who had been practicing polygamy for well, years, for actually over a decade, since the Supreme Court said that the law forbidding polygamy was constitutional. I think that was yeah. 1879, United States versus Reynolds. And it took him 11 years and being on the lam and being arrested I mean, obviously, these people were very committed to continuing the practice of polygamy. And that's because this wasn't a superfluity, right? Like Joseph F. Smith said, it's not a superfluity. This is the crowning ordinance. This is what gets you to a fullness of the gospel and a fullness of exaltation. That's why they kept doing it, in spite of the fact that they were getting crosswise with the federal government. And finally, the only reason that they gave in was because the federal government seized all of the church's assets. Yeah. And I would agree with apologists and say that the church may be, and at least at times, is lying through their teeth throughout all of the stuff that leads up to the Reed Smoot hearing and the hearing itself. But 
there's zero reason to understand that opening top uh, sentence as the church lying. There's just zero reason for it. Um, so right. the idea that we formerly taught to our people that polygamy or celestial marriage as commanded by God through the prophet Joseph Smith was right and that it was a necessity to man's highest exaltation in the life to come, it only benefits them for that to be the truth as they try to sway the U.S. government. Um, it's sort of that, we talked about this off the air, but it's sort of the criterion of embarrassment that's often used to show that parts of the New Testament, for instance, are accurate. Um, and then I just want to note here the the, the third piece down to be at peace with the government and in harmony with their fellow citizens who are not of their faith and to share in the confidence of the government and people. Our people have voluntarily put aside something which all their lives they have believed to be a sacred principle. Mm -hmm. um, again, celestial marriage. Right. In the context, they're trying to say these aren't people who are just coming out in open rebellion against the United States and the laws thereof, even though they were doing that too. But we're asking for amnesty for them because they were doing it out of a sense of religious conviction and piety because they were only doing what they were told to do. Yeah. George Q. Cannon, again, spent time in jail for his role in polygamy and who ran away from the law to escape the consequences of his actions. He says, there have been a great many revelations given to us that we have not had faith to carry out as they should be. This doctrine to which allusion has been made, the doctrine of celestial marriage, I heard one of the 12 say that he, if he were called upon to testify, he believed he could say truthfully that the Latter-day Saints were more pleased to hear the manifesto than they were to hear the revelation given on celestial marriage. Those are two polar opposites. That's why this comment's being made. Celestial marriage only makes sense in this quote if it is meant to mean plural marriage. That's the only way. Um, and then he goes on about, uh, I know myself that it was the will of God that the manifesto shall be given. I know that it was the will of God that the word should go to the Latter-day Saints, that plural marriages should cease, and that we should conform to the requirements of the law of the land. George Q. Cannon again, the juvenile instructor, 1885, a violent and vicious attack is being made upon the doctrine and practice of patriarchal marriage to comply with the request of our enemies, aka giving up polygamy, would be to give up all hope of ever entering into the glory of God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, the Son, so intimately interwoven in this precious doctrine of polygamy with the exaltation of men and women in the great hereafter that it cannot be given up without giving up at the same time all hope of immortal glory. Reducing plural marriage as celestial marriage to eternal marriage only that does not involve plural marriage has George Q. Cannon saying that this would be like giving up hope mm -hmm. without, I'm sorry, uh, let me say it again. It would be like, uh, it couldn't be given up without giving up at the same time all hope of immortal glory. Mm -hmm. This has to stay. This is part of the gospel. Um, this is part and parcel with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we can't abandon it. Lorenzo Snow, do you want to read this one, RFM? Sure. Uh, he knew, let's see, biography and family record of Lorenzo Snow. Oh, the author is Eliza Snow. He knew the voice of God. He knew the commandment of the Almighty to him was to go forward, to set the example and establish celestial plural marriage. Mm -hmm. He knew that he had not only his own prejudices and pre prepossessions to combat and to overcome, but those of the whole Christian world. But God had given the commandment, nevertheless, 
it is correct that celestial marriage was often used to refer to plural marriage. You have it. Because then you can talk about this publicly and only the people who are on the inside and know what the real definition is, know what you're talking about. And everybody else just thinks you're talking about, oh, just getting married to one woman in the temple. Yeah. 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 Uh, This is the Deseret News Church section, 17 June, 1933, signed by President Heber J. Grant. You want to talk about this one, RFM? This is the third manifesto. First one, 1890, second one, 1904, I believe it was, and the third one, 1933. And this third manifesto, sometimes called, is a first presidency statement, June 17th, 1933, signed by Heber J. Grant, President Anthony W. Ivins, first counselor, and J. Reuben Clark, second counselor, and widely reputed to have been the author of this statement. It is basically a legal brief as to why it is that the church was correct in getting rid of polygamy. Now, this is 43 years later, after the first manifesto, and they are still having trouble with members of the church practicing polygamy. You know why? Because it wasn't a superfluity. Because these people remember that it was taught to be essential to exaltation and celestial glory. They remembered this stuff. And so they continue to practice it. They're on the down low because after the second manifesto excommunication was going to be imposed on those who practice it now they're trying to do it secretly even for members of the church so they are sending out to the different state presidents to root these people out and if someone is not just getting married plurally or performing these plural marriages but even encouraging it then they should be excommunicated as well and it is in this document and it's toward the end it's multi-pages i read the whole thing through because i i knew this was there at least I'd heard it was there, and I wanted to find it myself, and I did. This is where J. Reuben Clark pulls the old switcheroo. This is the point at which celestial marriage now stops meaning plural marriage and means monogamous marriage in the temple. And this is the paragraph. It is. It doesn't follow from anything above. It doesn't lead into anything else. It's like it was just sort of pasted in there because he wanted to make this point. Celestial marriage, that is marriage for time and eternity. So now he has defined it exclusively as marriage for time and eternity, not plural marriage. Okay, but celestial marriage and polygamous or plural marriage are not synonymous terms. Monogamous marriages for time and eternity solemnized in our temples in accordance with the word of the Lord and the laws of the church are celestial marriages. Here's where the big redefinition takes place and is cemented in a first presidency statement. So now celestial marriages are not polygamous marriages anymore. Celestial marriages are temple marriages between one man and one woman. Yeah, the reason I'm I'm pausing here for a moment is because I just want to note, this is the exact same document that we did an episode on. It was Mormonism Live, episode 42. It was titled Revelation excommunications, lies, and obfuscations, the 1886 John Taylor divination. I just threw a bunch of words in there to rhyme, uh, probably used one too many. But one of the things that we, yeah, one of the things we, we hit on here was that the church leaders, we could show without a question of a doubt that they had lied in this letter. And they had lied because, sorry, I've got a dog barking. Um, they had lied because 
there were like five people that were part of that letter who were at the trial of John W. Taylor and heard it acknowledged or admitted themselves that they knew the 1886 revelation existed and that it was John Taylor, the president of the church, was the author of it. And in this 1933 letter that that the leadership of the church ascribes their names to, five of them were in that earlier 1904 disciplinary court of John W. Taylor, Mm-hmm. And they lie in the 1933 letter that the 1886 letter, they didn't know anything about it and they couldn't, they didn't they think it was an authentic it. letter. Yeah. They couldn't find it in the church archives. Yeah. So therefore it must not exist. No. And You're I'm right. Stick... That is in this, that is in this statement. I remember reading that as well. Yeah. And also just so everybody knows, first off, recollect with me about how in church history in the 1830s, Zion was supposed to be in Missouri and they were supposed to establish the new Jerusalem. They weren't able to. We all know the story. But ultimately, the Lord gives a revelation saying, okay, well, when you go to with all of your might to fulfill a commandment I have given you and your enemies come upon you and thwart you in fulfilling that commandment, forget what I said about you know going before you and fighting your battles for you because I was just kidding about that. Actually, you don't have to fulfill it anymore. I'm not going to require it of you anymore. And I will count it unto you as if you had kept the commandment, even though you weren't able to, because your enemies were stronger than you. And I was, I'm just not there for you. You know, I'm not going to fight your battles for you after all. Reuben J. Clark in this statement was the first person, he's credited with being the first person to use the argument from that episode in church history and apply it to plural marriage and say the same principle applies. You were commanded to obey it. You went to and you tried everything you could to obey it. You were thwarted in doing it by the government and therefore you don't have to obey it anymore. Yeah. The question though is why then doesn't the LDS church just come clean and say, hey, you guys are right. We were commanded to do this. We did teach it as being everlasting, essential to exaltation. But here's our reasons for why this had to be pulled off. Uh, you know, but that's not what they did. They changed the definition of celestial marriage. They changed the definition of the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And then back to that 1933 uh, letter that we've got up on the screen, it was Heber J. Grant, A.W. Ivins, George Albert Smith, David O. McKay, and Joseph Fielding Smith. All of them had a hand in the 1933 letter all five of them were at the, sorry, I said the year wrong, the 1911 trial of John W. Taylor. Those five men having a piece of that 1933 letter from the first presidency, because they report about Joseph uh, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith helping them out with the history behind it, examining things. Uh, so he's not part of the first presidency, but he is involved in helping them research the data for the letter. Here's what they say. As to this pretended revelation, talk about the 1886 revelation, it should be said that the archives of the church contain no such revelation. The archives uh, contain no record of any such revelation, nor any evidence justifying a belief that any such revelation was ever given. Those five men knew for sure because they were at the trial of John W. Taylor that that revelation did exist, and it was written under the hand of President John Taylor. Um, I think it's a big deal. Can you imagine going to Joseph? They're fudging things at yeah. this point. Can you imagine going to Joseph Fielding Smith 
and having him tell you, well, this document isn't in the archives and you're saying, oh, okay, well then I guess it never existed yeah. because it's in his safe. Yeah. This is Joseph Fielding Smith. He's the guy who cuts things out and hides them in his safe. Yeah. Why does the church need to lie about how this was taught, what it meant, why it was given up? Why can't the LDS church and its leaders just be entirely honest and transparent about what's going on here? Why did they have to lie in 1933? Why did they have to redefine celestial marriage? Why did they have to redefine a new and everlasting covenant of marriage? Why do they have to uh, distance themselves from acknowledging what the early leaders of the church taught? Well, it's um, a rhetorical question, right? Because the answer is obvious, isn't it? Yeah, because you have to cover up the fact that you're not doing things the way all of the guys before you said it had to be done. Right. And now you have a defective product. What you have is a product that does not give the fullness of exaltation and glory and immortality in the celestial kingdom, according to all the teachings of the prior leaders of the church. Yeah. So here is the church's website. This was a talk from 2015 and you'll see this topic pop up every once in a while because the church feels a need to continually reestablish what the new and everlasting covenant is so that none of us get confused as we research uh, the deep annals of history. This says here, the church affirms that monogamy is God's standard for marriage, except when he authorizes or commands otherwise through his prophet. The church does not teach that participation in plural marriage is necessary for exaltation. That's carefully worded because they're speaking about the church in the modern moment. But the problem is that prophets, seers, and revelators, generation after generation from 1843 until 1890, absolutely taught that plural marriage was essential for exaltation. Yes. And once again, I think we've made it clear, not celestial kingdom, but the highest level in the celestial kingdom. Yeah. The By the way... Say that, say that again, sorry. The fullness. Yeah. I want you to notice that BYU, its religious education, religious study center, sort of knows that the modern church is dishonest. So they sort of have to carefully word, but be more historically accurate than the church. So speaking of this new and everlasting covenant of marriage, President Ezra Tapp Benson explained that this order of priesthood spoke of in the scriptures is sometimes referred to as the patriarchal order. Huh. Because it, because look at, listen to his explanation. Because it came down from father to son. But this order is otherwise described in modern revelation as an order of family government where a man and woman enter a covenant with God just as Adam and Eve to be sealed for eternity. President Benson made that up. That's not real. We just showed, I think, six examples at least of patriarchal matrimony the patriarchal order being mentioned in its hand-in-hand, -hand, part and parcel with plural marriage. And Ezra Tapp Benson goes, oh, no, 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 it's called patriarchal because, let's see, the word patriarch, oh, it's given from father to son. Right, and I think there's an element of truth to that, but it's not in place of. Mm -mm. It's in addition to. I mean, the first 10 guys, you know, uh, in Genesis, right, the patriarchs from Adam to Noah, that, that was a patriarchal priesthood in that it was handed from father to son. So that, that is true, but it doesn't undo everything else. And it doesn't change the fact that the patriarchal priesthood also refers to plural marriage. And notice the big 
sentence or the big uh, caps there, how the, I don't, I'm inserting the, but how modern church defines celestial marriage. Celestial marriage is essential to exaltation in the highest heaven. In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. In order to obtain the highest, a man or woman must enter into this order of the priesthood, the patriarchal priesthood, mm-hmm. meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Meaning? And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may not enter into the other, but that is the end of his kingdom and he cannot have increase. So at a minimum, what I've understood from tonight's episode is that that section 131, if you can throw it back up on the screen, all of a sudden now has new and much deeper meaning, which is celestial marriage, which is plural marriage. Celestial marriage is essential. You wanted 131, you said? No, I just wanted the one that you were on. Oh, I got you. My bad. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Let me go back here. That celestial marriage from section 131. Yeah. Next. No, right there. Celestial marriage, which mm-hmm. is eternal, which is plural marriage, is essential to exaltation in the highest heaven. That's the head note from DNC 131. In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. And in order to obtain the highest, a man or a woman must enter into this order of the priesthood, the patriarchal priesthood meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, both of which are synonyms for plural marriage. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. What? The highest degree of glory. He may enter into the other, a lesser degree, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. This seems to be exactly what Brigham Young was teaching. Yeah. The the church has taken something, and because it was forced to get rid of it, and it had promised for 50 years it would never get rid of it, its only choice was to redefine words. Right. Yeah. All right. I just want to note here that this is just kind of a side thing. Greg Trimble is an active, believing Latter-day Saint. If you read that there, according to Trimble, he believes that plural marriage is not a celestial law, and it's not required in the celestial kingdom. But he gives a different reason, because he knows what the history says. Because many members of the church confuse plural marriage with the new and everlasting covenant, they believe they will need to live it in order to obtain the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. According to Trimble, yep, it's not true. He affir- reaffirms plural marriage as one of those exceptional commandments given to men and women at various times for specific purposes. He like claims, yep, he claims this early confusion over the doctrine of eternal marriage caused a lot of strange things to be done in ignorance. It wasn't until many years later with Wilford Woodruff in which the sealing ordinances would be fleshed out and their understanding corrected. In other words, he's saying the early leaders got it wrong. Joseph Smith screwed it up. He's ignorant. He doesn't understand what's going on. Brigham Young, same thing. John Taylor, same thing. It waited until Wilfred Woodruff, of all people, to come along as the fourth president of the church to finally figure it out, to finally understand what God was trying to say. Yeah. And then I just want to note Terrell Givens and Philip Barlow in their book, The Oxford Handbook of Mormonism, 19th century Mormons believed plural marriage was the highest form of marriage, meriting the greatest glory among those exalted. Again, you in a, in a, in a different uh, platform, you called Terrell Givens a weasel. I agree with you, by the way. But I just want to note here that I also trust Terrell when push comes to shove he will not be blatantly untrue. He'll he'll carefully word things. He'll mix stuff up. But he is acknowledging here 
that 19th century Mormons absolutely believed that plural marriage was required for exaltation. So he's an editor of articles, I expect, that were submitted by various individuals. So he probably didn't write this, but as an editor, he allowed it to stand. Yeah, because I'm guessing, by the way, I haven't actually read the Oxford Handbook of Mormonism, but it says edited by Terrell Givens and Philip Barlow. So that's why I'm expecting Terrell Givens didn't write it. He edited it along with Philip. Yeah, but him and Philip would both agree this is true. Well, I don't really care what Terrell Givens agrees. I'm a little more interested in what Philip Barlow thinks than Terrell Givens, because I think Philip Barlow thinks more and more deeply than Terrell. But this statement is unequivocally true, as you have demonstrated tonight. Yeah. And then talk to us about uh, this here. It's all about definitions. If you can define the words, if you have the power to define the words, then you are the master of any discussion. That is the supreme power. That is the great superpower in any argument. Before we get to this, Maven, did you want to say something? Uh, No, we can finish this, but then before we go to the next slide, I just wanted to bring up a a comment and a response. Okay, so this goes back to Alice in Wonderland. Humpty Dumpty once said to Alice, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, nothing more or less. Now, of course, that's ridiculous. You, You don't get to choose what your words mean. Otherwise, there can be no communication, right? And so Alice says, Alice responded to Humpty Dumpty, the question is, whether you can make words mean so many different things. Humpty Dumpty retorted, nope, the question is, which is to be master? That's all. So if you are the master of the definitions, then you win every argument. And that is what the church has done with the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. That's what the church has done with the patriarchal order of marriage. And that is what the church has done with celestial marriage. Maven. So I'm just going to bring up this comment here. Um, it says that uh, at the one hour, one minute, 30 second mark, your logic takes a leap, saying Orson Pratt agreeing with Brigham Young on polygamy, even though he disagrees on blood atonement, means Joseph started polygamy. Please remember, Orson had eight wives. Right. Um, the reason he had eight wives is because he believed it was from God because he knew it was from Joseph Smith. Right. He was around then. I mean, up... he almost committed suicide over it for crying out loud. They found him out walking down by the Mississippi River, looking wistfully at the current like he wanted to throw himself in. Okay. So, um, did you want to say something about it, Maven? You brought it up. I'm sorry. And yeah. I'm yeah. No, I just have. So, this is this is Orson Pratt. This is in that uh, 1852 um, discourse that was delivered to the priesthood. Um, and I'll go ahead and read. At least this is according to Orson himself that he does believe it came to Joseph. This is what he says. But, says one, how have you obtained this information? By new revelation. When was it given? And to whom? It was given to our prophet, seer, and revelator, Joseph Smith, on the 12th day of July, 1843, only about 11 months before he was martyred for the testimony of Jesus. And then going on further... Now, let us inquire what will become of those... Oh, wait, this might not be the one I was looking for. Sorry. There was another one where he goes into... Uh, no, you I think this, this is one. here. I Yeah, I will tell you at the bottom. They will be damned, saith the Lord, in the revelation he has given. Uh, if Oh, no, this is this is where they reject it. I, have a, I think I have another quote. But anyway, it is there from Orson Pratt. 
Um, and you can say that you don't believe that he's saying it or that he has ulterior motives for saying it, but we have a direct source from Orson putting it in the mouth of Joseph Smith. So I just wanted to address that. Thank you so much, Maven, because the more I think about this, the more enamored I'm becoming with this particular argument. If there was anybody in the church who would have called out Brigham Young if he suspected that Brigham Young were making this up after the fact, this doctrine of plural marriage, and foisting upon Joseph Smith, when Joseph Smith never said anything about it, Orson Pratt would have been the one to call Brigham Young out publicly, and we would have a record of it. So I think the fact that Orson Pratt does say this, did support, was one of the foremost defenders of the church in regard to practicing plural marriage, is a very strong argument that Brigham Young did not make this up and falsely yeah. attribute it to Joseph Smith. I and found the second quote Vogel. from the same talk that I was looking. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Bill, if you want to Vo do Dan Vogel, yeah, and then Vogel. I'll do this last one. Yeah, Dan Vogel said Pratt's wife, Sarah, confirmed that Joseph Smith propositioned her. Yeah, so, but she was an yeah. anti-Mormon when she said that, Dan. You can't trust anything anti-Mormon <laughs> say. Says, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, Orson had gone on further to say this was the word of the Lord to his servant. Oh, I missed that. It's like a Sorry, nomad moment from Star Trek. Yeah. Um, the the second quote I was looking for was, this was the word of the Lord to his servant Joseph, the prophet himself. With all the knowledge and light he had, he must comply with it, or says the Lord unto him, you shall be damned. And the same is true in regard to all those who reject these things. That was the last one. Yeah. And it's not just that Orson Pratt, I'm going to pursue this, um, like St. Pat in the woodchuck. I am going to say that Orson Pratt is not just somebody who, who would call out Brigham Young on it if he disagreed, and we know he would because he did on other things, but he's also like the smartest guy, one of the smartest people this church has ever had as a member, and I think he would have been able to figure it out if Brigham Young were actually making this up. Yeah, 100% agree. He was there I just, all along the way. Yeah. I just want to note here, when President Nelson suggested that the Latter-day Saints think celestial. And by the way, that phrase sort of sounds, it, it accomplishes the same thing as keep sweet and obey, right? Mm. Keep sweet. It's it's the same thought-stopping technique for, for lots of other things. But think celestial. When President Nelson suggested to the Latter-day Saints that they think celestial, now I hope all of you will have in your mind what celestial really meant uh, prior to 1890, before the church rebranded the word and what it means. Wonderful presentation tonight. Oh, look at this, a meme. Think There's celestial. President Nelson thinking celestial himself and setting the example. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, I need to pull up uh, the call-in studio really quick. I'm really sorry about that. Um, That's okay. Any thoughts from... You in regards to, uh, I guess I'm trying to buy myself a moment, but the church in terms of playing these kinds of games and putting itself forward as being the honest person in the room, but at every turn, they're constantly being deceptive about what words mean and what the history said and what's going on uh, when we look back at the documented history of the church. Any thoughts about that level of dishonesty, which just, you know, we pointed out a hundred times probably. Uh, in significant ways in the last uh, three years. Uh, well, it appears that honesty is not number one 
on the to-do list for church leaders. The main thing that they want to do is, number one, protect the image of the church, which is also their image. And whatever it is they have to do in order to... <laughs> whatever it is they have to do in order to fulfill mission one that's a prime directive they'll do up to and including making statements like this that some people some anti-mormons like you bill might call lying by the way saint yeah. pat in the woodchuck for those of you who didn't get that I, I know dan vogel did history of the church okay volume d1 first august 1840 anyway this is something that joseph smith had said and i'm not sure people have necessarily understood it but it says, um, on June 11th, I will criticize a little further. There has been much said about the word hell, and the sectarian world have preached much about it, describing it as a burning lake of fire and brimstone. But whoever revealed it, God never did. But what is hell? It is another modern term and is taken from Hades. This is where he says it now. I'll hunt after Hades, as Pat did for the woodchuck. Hmm. And I think some people have suggested it might be St. Pat, as in St. Patrick, and there might be a story about St. Patrick and a woodchuck. But that's what that was my illusion when I said that. Yeah. That's I just want to know not illusion. I want to know just I want to play this quote again. I just I want the believer, if there's any believers out there listening, it you know, Jacob Hansen likes to play this game where, you know, Bill Real or or and or Radio Free Mormon are dishonest. Midnight Mormons or Ward Radio like to play this game where we're dishonest. The church is constantly encouraging its its believers to ignore those outside voices um to not pay any attention to those lazy learners but when the church says things like this there's this idea that the church is hiding something that which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the quorum of the 12 from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Except we could show that they lied in 1933, that they redefined words that had significant meaning in the church and were essential to exaltation. And this is just one example. These guys have a lifetime habit pattern uh, of continually lying and then lying about their lying. I'm just going to say that, you know, we challenge people. There was that caller, uh, James Raphael, right, who said, Bill, mm -hmm. real, you're a liar. Here's the examples. And they were pathetic. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you. Mormonism Live is the place that's telling the truth. We're putting all the quotes up. We're putting all the documents. And by the way, there actually were more. There were like 50 more I could have put up to continue to prove the point, but we didn't want to go for an extra two hours. So um, when you're looking, you can either choose faithful, believing perspectives, or you can choose the truth. And which one of those you pursue is entirely up to you. All right, calls. Um, Anytime somebody calls me a lazy learner, yeah. I'm just going to say <laughs> Pat and the woodchuck. Yeah, there you go. All right, first caller. Uh, what's the name caller? Hmm. Uh, hopefully we don't have the same problem we have. Oh, here we go. Let's try it again. Are you there? Hey, I'm here. Yep, what's the name? Uh, Algernon. 
Awesome. Go ahead, Algernon. I have some flowers for you. Hey. Why, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, I love the, the show tonight. It was great. It always is. Um, but this, this changing terms it kind of put me down a rabbit hole while you guys were talking. Have you guys done a cast already on how like Mormon doublespeak and how the terms change and all that? Well, we're doing one tonight. I'm not sure if I remember doing another one specifically about that. Did you have any ideas or examples, Algernon? Well, um, I know there was, let's see. I'm trying to think. There was one that went around my I family. I feel like it's been addressed before, but I don't know if there's been just like one episode where a bunch of examples have gone over. I think they're kind of like this episode where we're talking about one thing. Um, uh, there's a comment I could maybe find. Here we go. Where like evangelist means something else, celestial means something else, translation means mm. something else, sacrament means something else. So I think on a topic by topic basis, this has been noted as a common occurrence. That's all I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Translation is certainly getting twisted. I think uh, exalted also. Yeah, agency. Agency now. That's a recent change. Oh, for sure. Historical. Dark. Yeah, I do appreciate that. Like, maybe that's an episode at some point we will do, which is to draw out numerous examples of that double speak or redefining words or rebranding aspects of the restored gospel so that you can change things that were once unchangeable. And I think in general, it's a tactic of, uh, of cults or, you know, what we would say is unhealthy organizations, um, yeah. that this is a known an established pattern right to, to continually re-articulate kind of the vernacular vocabulary of the faith yeah 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 not just in yeah. mormonism yeah totally thank you caller no problem have a good one yeah. thanks so much all right and then uh, i believe we've got walt on the line walt are you there yep i'm here can you hear me yeah we can go ahead my friend Great. Thank you. It's been a great topic tonight. I really appreciate it. I always love it when you bring the documentation. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that came to my mind is I, I recently uh, read uh, Carol Lynn Pearson's book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy. And she brought, she has some personal correspondence between her and Leonard Arrington connecting uh, polygamy to the doctrine or the gospel of celestial adoption and notes that only young men were adopted into the, uh, the you know, the grand families, the youngs and the and Joseph Smith, whereas women were always sealed. And it's kind of pointing out that this, you know, in addition to, you know, some, you know, ego and possible sexual desires, that there was this need for family that Joseph Smith was feeling. And it was, you know, this just kind of hit me again as a, how basically millions of people are uh, having all this difficult time because of one man's uh, you know, traumas in his life. Walt, I think there is a tendency, and I don't know if there's any truth to it. At this point, we're engaged in mind reading. Joseph Smith had plenty of family in his own family. He had brothers and sisters out the wazoo. He's got his dad with him who follows him into the church. He passes away, I think, of malaria in 1840. 
His mom continues in the church. Uh, he doesn't need additional family. He's not an orphan, okay? So it seems to me, and I don't mean to denigrate anybody by saying this, but it seems to me that trying to portray polygamy as the equivalent of adopting young men into your family, which are only adopted and never married, right? And then portraying it as a desire that Joseph Smith had for family and kinship is trying to put lipstick on a pig. Certainly don't. I, I don't disagree with you on that. Um, I and you know I think Carolyn Pearson would definitely agree with you that there was there was more to the polygamy side. Um, I, I was just noting that you know kind of these you know, basically one man's needs or wants affecting all of us hundreds of years later trying to explain them away is uh, is unfortunate and justify them. Yes, absolutely. Instead of, uh, and I know Carol Pearson has said in another place, and I've heard her, and I've read that book, though it's been a number of years, um, talked about taking the things that are good from Joseph Smith and then like grain in her hand and blowing away the husk of things that are not good, including polygamy, and just keeping the grains of seed that remain. Thank you, caller. Right. Thanks. Thank day. you, Walt. All right. And then our last call for the night, I believe, is a Matthew. Matthew, are you there? Hello. Hey, how are you? Hi, Bill. I'm doing fine. How are you? Really good, my friend. Thanks for taking the call. I just had kind of some thoughts about the way the church doctrine has changed so much over the years and it always seems like they're increasing the requirements on people and the, and trying to get them to uh, be motivated to, you know, achieve something. And, you know, the case in point being this idea of the highest level of the celestial kingdom and that you have to have three wives in order to get there. And, you know, it's, it's just, you're never good enough. Hmm. And, you know, even Dallin Oaks recently talked about how, you know, well, the LDS church is put out by the Lord in order for us to be exalted. So you can be, you know, if you're only interested in salvation, that's just fine. You can be a regular Christian, but, you know, we're we're into the exaltation thing, right? And it used to drive me crazy as a as a you know active member when people would talk about, for example, lower levels of the celestial kingdom or the terrestrial kingdom or the mm -hmm. celestial kingdom as being like a hell. You know, it's like oh, you're you're going to be so miserable to get saved in the kingdom of God because it's just not good enough to be you know, a terrestrial person. I just think the whole thing is so maddening. And you can see how it's, you know, maybe not by design, but there is some kind of element of the leaders wanting to motivate people so much. Like, oh, you just got to do this and this and this and this and this so you can get this goal. And it's so antithetical to the gospel that Paul 
puts out in his letters and, you know, that mainstream Christianity, you know, for some part, I mean, obviously there's different groups that believe different things, but anyway, it's just crazy to me now that I'm outside of, of Mormonism and, and can see, you know, it's kind of like a, a scam. Yeah, I probably would take so out the Those are the thoughts that I had. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, I think it was Woody Allen who said, if it turns out that there is a God, the worst that you could say about him is that basically he's an underachiever. Yeah. But uh, when it comes to, the reason I thought of that is because Mormons are overachievers, right? That is a message that's put out by the leadership of the church, is that we have to be overachievers. And so frequently, the overachieving that we have to do is something that we just can't keep up with because we're only human. Try as hard as we can. We can't be perfect and do all the things that the LDS church requires of us. And so therefore, we're always feeling like we're not good enough because no matter how much you do in this church, you could always do more. No matter how well you do it, you could always do it better. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wrapping up here. I'm kind of wondering if I'll be able to express this right, but if for 50 years, 1843 to 1890, prophets, seers, and revelators were all on the same page, that section 132 is about polygamy, that the terms celestial marriage and new and everlasting covenant of marriage and patriarchal matrimony are all references to plural marriage, that plural marriage is absolutely necessary for exaltation, that one cannot be exalted in the highest degrees of the celestial kingdom with eternal increase without it, and that the church would be uh, have gone off base to have separated eternal marriage from plural marriage, that, that it can't be done. What you're left with then is you either have to go, well, then the church went into apostasy, that seems like that's one clear, reasonable solution. But for the Latter-day Saint who somehow says like, no, 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 living prophets trump dead prophets, it's okay that they were wrong. Then you, then you have to, if you're, if you're going to be a reasonable, rational person, you have to have then a long conversation with yourself or with a critic, and you have to be able to explain how prophets, seers, and revelators can ever be trustable if you self-admit that all of them for 50 years from Joseph Smith until Wilford Woodruff weren't. They weren't trustable as those who could discern the mind and will of God accurately. That Jesus Christ didn't speak to John Taylor in 1886. That John Taylor imagined it. That Joseph Smith somehow got it wrong. That Brigham Young somehow got it wrong. That uh, John Taylor got it wrong. And you, you end up being left with having to figure out why you would place any degree of trust in the modern day 15 leaders of the church who seem to be running a business and, and, and doc, in a documented way have been dishonest and deceptive around finances, around what they're honest about in church history. And you're choosing to believe them in spite of the fact that the message they give today about what is eternal marriage, what is celestial marriage, what is the new and everlasting covenant is a 180 turn from 
and a complete abandonment of the eternal doctrines of the past that prophets, seers, and revelators testified of as being not only true, but but you can't get away from it. It is part of the gospel plan and cannot be done away. We will suffer at the hands of the U.S. government before we will get rid of it. And you'd have to explain to me why the President Nelson and Elder Oaks and uh, Neil Anderson and D. Todd Christofferson, Jeffrey R. Holland, why those guys are worthy of any trust in them as really being prophets, seers, and revelators if they simply abandoned the absolute eternal doctrines of the past and then lied about doing it. And that is why they have to redefine the words. Yeah, but they're lying to you. I want to... And I just wanted to piggyback, not just them being wrong the whole time. I'll, I'll pull this comment back up that I was showing. Um, I just thought it was funny that you were saying they can't get away from this right as this commenter had also done it. Um, it's harming the church and people to this day. So not only were they wrong about things like back in their time that caused just catastrophically tragic things to happen in the lives of the members back then, but the traces of that to today where women are still considered less than and second-class citizens and not listened to, this is all a product of that polygamy. So it's still it's still harming people. And then Bill, like as you said, to bring it back to modern times, we, we know that there's harm and problems in families with the family proclamation, with the church's LGBTQ stance. You know, when, when people are, you know, are, are committing suicide over these doctrines, especially uh, teenagers who feel really um, alone in this or with the church really pushing heterosexual marriages uh, on gay people, which then ended up imploding. So then you've got horrific divorce again with children involved, just just really ruining things across the board for people. It's not just that they're wrong and believing them, but uh, continuing to believe them when we see this harm. And I, you brought up Jacob Hansen, so I'll just bring him up again. He is one of these people that just kind of shrugged their shoulders at the harm that uh, is caused to any family. You don't have to be LGBTQ, but know or love anyone who is, and it's it's harming and it's tearing apart your family. And, you know, people like Jacob, because they have this trust in the leadership, because they can't see that they're wrong, are, are willing to support that as far as they feel like they're able to socially, you know, without, yeah. without pushback. Yeah. Is it wrong for me to ask who the heck is Jacob Hansen? <laughs> Jacob who? He's not important. <laughs> okay. What if you were born into a church and from day one in the, at the earliest age in primary growing up through young men's and young women's, what if you were manipulated at every turn to believe and to see this church through a certain lens, to think this church is the one true church upon the earth, it has prophets, seers, and revelators, they're the ones who don't lie, they tell the truth, they always teach the truth. What if that's not accurate? What if you've been deceived? What if you've been tricked your entire life to see things a certain way, but it was the way they wanted you to see things all along? 